This is Tate Talks on iHub Radio, a fresh perspective on how to live your best life. Combining biological sciences, mind-body medicine, nutrition, and exercise. This is the place to get the big picture on health and wellness. Live from the iHub Radio studios in Palm Springs, California, here's functional medicine certified health coach and award-winning wellness expert, Jason Tate. This is Jason Tate, and you are listening to Tate Talks. Thank you for taking time out of your day and your life to listen to the show, where I have some amazing information to share with you today. In this hour of Tate Talks, I will be sharing research that I've been working on with regard to a book I'm writing titled Sugar and the Fate of Man. I'm going to talk about the biology and science of carbohydrates and how a highly addictive organic molecule that evolved over 130 million years ago has become the foundation for the majority of chronic diseases that plague humans today. If that doesn't uh, pique your interest a little bit, I don't know what would at this point. So here we are in 2020. I think it's safe to say that. It's been one heck of a year, let me just tell you. And I hate to uh, add some pounds to the problems that we're having, but I need to talk about the pounds uh, and the problems that we're having right now because the CDC this year released uh, reports and information about obesity statistics, and they're not good. Uh, so at the turn of the century, we were at about 30% of Americans in the obese category in, in around 1999. And the goal was, and as that had crept up, the goal was to reverse that and get it back down to 30%. However, this year in 2020, it was reported that we've actually hit over 40%. We're at 42.4% obese with a BMI of 30 or higher. Not just that, this is uh, published by the US News and World Report. What happens with this is it's fueling related health issues like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even some cancers, all of which are among the leading causes of death in the United States. Uh, and according to this data released by the CDC, the obesity rate reached 42.4%. Actually, at the end of 2018, it's even higher now. And what's happening is <clears throat> we have a situation where federal officials have been warning us for two decades now that we need to get this under control. The American Heart Association and the federal government keep preaching something called energy balance where we need to get fit, need to exercise more, eat healthier. But the definition of eating healthy is never really, you know, outlined. And for many people, you know, when you even ask the question, do you eat healthy? They think about it and they think, well, some people say, yes, I do. And some people say, no, I don't. And then when you ask the question, what does that look like? What does eating healthy look like? This is a very confusing question for a lot of people. And as a health coach and a health expert, I have to tell you, it is a little bit different for various people because we are different. 
And it's important to recognize that and celebrate it, but then also hang our hat and really get around the concepts that there are some basic food rules and some basic biology and biochemistry that are not different. They're universal. They're as universal as the laws of physics. Just like smoking cigarettes can literally cause lung cancer, certain foods can literally cause obesity and certain types of foods. So there are things that we can get around that are actual and factual and true. And during this show, this hour of the show, I'm going to be sharing with you the history, the science, the biochemistry, and we'll be focusing primarily on one nutrient, uh, carbohydrates, and then the various different types of carbohydrates, as well as the hormones uh, in the body that are affected by the consumption of carbohydrates. Back to this data released by the CDC. So they had broken it up um, by racial disparities. And actually, I don't know, John, are we doing Facebook Live this week? Can I share this link with you? Is this something we can do? I'll keep talking. Um, I sent the link to John. If we are doing uh, Facebook Live, uh, I can share this link with you so you can see the data for yourself. But among the obese in the United States, the Caucasian white uh, percentage is 42.2%. Blacks are actually we'll, 49.6, we'll uh, almost 50%. Jason, we'll put the links with uh, our podcast versions. We don't do Facebook Live uh, anymore until we've moved to our new location. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'll definitely make sure that I share that and so that you can catch it. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, you just click the link and it'll take you to these articles. And that's what I'll do um, in this research. I'll share links to the things that I'm talking about so that you can see the sources for them as well. So nearly 50% of African-American uh, people, especially among the men, and what's even more disturbing is in the severe obesity category, we're looking at nearly 14% of African-Americans in the United States are in the severe and morbid obesity category. Um, and among the Caucasian white, we're looking at 9.3 and Hispanic populations around 8% in the severe obesity. Hispanics are around 45% in the 30 or, or higher. Severe obesity is over 40. And you're looking at a situation here where there is a huge uh, increased risk for uh, cardiovascular disease, strokes, diabetes, cancer, all of these chronic diseases. So what is a chronic disease? Okay, According to the CDC, chronic diseases are conditions that last a year or more and require ongoing medical attention to limit activities, uh, daily activities, change your diet, change your lifestyle. The most common chronic diseases are heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And they are the leading drivers of our nation's three and a half trillion dollar a year healthcare costs. There was a statistic I saw recently: over 86 percent of this 3.5 trillion dollar healthcare costs uh, annual 
86% is preventable chronic disease. And so if we want to uh, stimulate our economy, we keep talking economy, economy, economy. If you want to stimulate the economy, let's stimulate some education. <laughs> let's stimulate some uh, healthy eating and healthy living and get, get around these concepts that understand what's happening, what are the trends, and why are they happening. And as you know, I have found several doctors and wellness experts and scientists who have pretty much pinpointed what's going on. I've kind of done my own spin in my research, taking it much further back, doing a whole botany perspective and biology perspective, which I'm going to share with you during the show today. But it's amazing to me that so many people still have never heard of this. And here we are in a situation where you know, our healthcare is hurting this country financially, and it's hurting us uh, in our lives as well. Not to mention, we're in the middle of this pandemic, and we talk about people who are at risk. We talk about people who um, are high-risk category if they get COVID to not survive it. And we're talking about a large percent of our population being obese and dealing with chronic diseases. 50% of Americans have at least one chronic disease, 50%. And 25% of Americans have two or more chronic diseases. This is staggering. And this is just tragic. We're talking chronic lung disease, cancer, strokes, Alzheimer's, diabetes, kidney disease, and now fatty liver disease. These are driven by one molecule. And it's fascinating to me because the story of where this molecule came from and why it evolved is just so, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a love story. <laughs> and it's, it's incredibly biological and it has to do with reproduction. And it's just fascinating to me. So I've been, I've been enjoying telling this story and I can't wait to tell you more about it. <clears throat> These are the chronic diseases. These are the statistics. And there have been these key landmark events that have happened during the course of the last 30 years, uh, actually 40 years. It started about 40 years ago. Uh, of course, there were things that happened before then that led to an increased consumption of certain types of foods. But there were some key events that occurred in the 50s and 60s, and then again in the 70s that I'm going to be sharing with you. So one thing that I want to point out is, and, and this is something that a mentor and somebody that, that I love to study under, I learned so much from him, is Dr. Robert Lustig. Uh, he's a pediatric endocrinologist, which means he works with children, young adults. Endocrine, endocrinologist is understanding hormones and how Hormones regulate body processes throughout the body. And, and so he works with hormones like insulin and leptin and ghrelin, the hormones dealing with digestion and energy storage and that type of thing. And so one of his books, um, there's one of my favorite books, is Fat Chance. So if you want to really dive into the science and get, gain a deep understanding of why we have this obesity epidemic right now, read the book, Fat Chance. Even just the first few chapters, 
you're going to gain so much information from this man. And, and the way that he writes is fantastic as well. So Robert Lustig, L-U-S-T-I-G, and the book is Fat Chance. Highly recommend reading this book. So in this book, he mentions key drivers to the weight gain. And it really comes down to the management of certain key hormones as well. And what I've been able to do in my research, like I said, is bring in the biology and the science of this and go back 130 million years to the genesis of this molecule, which is fascinating. But what has happened in the last 40 years has really been something that we need to pay attention to if we want to survive this for the next 40 years which is questionable, especially when science is not necessarily given the credit that it's due. So what I'm going to be sharing with you next is some key landmark events. When did our health as a species plummet? More people today die from obese malnourishment than even starvation. So I'll be sharing the science. I'll be sharing some key events in history. Stay with me right here on Tate Talks. Health and wellness conversation from A to Z. This is Tate Talks on iHub Radio with Jason Tate. This is Tate Talks, and you're listening to Jason Tate. This show today that I'm sharing with you is I'm talking about obesity, I'm talking about weight gain, severe obesity, uh, overweight, weight management, and the science of it, uh, and really focusing on some key landmark events and the trends so you know even when i was a kid going to school you know in the 80s and 90s there weren't very many obese kids in school but now today we're looking at you know at some schools schools that i work with uh, over 30 percent of teenagers in the obese category this is unheard of and of course you know, in the 70s and 80s, there weren't kids with type 2 diabetes. It wasn't even called type 2 diabetes. It was called adult onset diabetes because kids didn't get it, which, of course, we know now that's not the case. And so we had to rename this. And so I want to connect the dots. I want to, you know, put one piece to the next and bring it all together and kind of start to create a clearer picture so that you can see, and this is, again, based upon research that I've pulled together. So there, I'm going to jump around in history a little bit. One key event in history happened in September of 1955, um, a little while before I was born. But in 1955, Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, was president in his first term, and he 
suffered a major heart attack. And it shocked the world. How is this American president stricken down by something like this? And it, and it had never happened before. And so this was something that really shocked the world. And so it sparked the debate. It sparked the what are you eating question when this American president is, you know, knocked down. He survived the heart attack. Uh, he survived the first one. Let's just put it that way. And uh, he actually ran for a second term. He was 64 when he had his first heart attack. He ran a second term, and in February 1956, he announced he would run again. Despite undergoing surgery uh, in June for inflammation of the small intestine, a year after getting reelected, he was back in the hospital, having trouble completing sentences, and a team of specialists had confirmed that the president had suffered a stroke. He recovered again, becoming something of a health exercise freak in his second term. Uh, but he was very stubborn and refused to take orders to discontinue smoking and indulge in food that's not on the restrictive prescribed diet for his heart and intestinal problems. So after his first heart attack in 1955, it's believed that Dwight Eisenhower suffered at least seven myocardial infarctions and 14 cardiac arrests before he died in 1969 at the age of 78. Um, this, this really set things into motion. And in the seventies, there were a couple of doctors, an American nutritionist, Dr. Ansel Keys, and a British nutrition professor, Dr. John Yudkin. And these names are really important because they kind of went head to head trying to figure out who's the villain here. What is causing all this uh, heart disease and these this rise in heart attacks? And so Ansel Keys, based upon his results in 1970 of his seven countries study, he handpicked seven countries, he concluded that dietary fat was to blame for high blood cholesterol and actually blamed cholesterol as and, and plaque buildup for the heart attacks. It at the same time, uh, British anatomist John Yudkin disagreed. He actually said sugar, especially fructose sugar, was the cause of heart disease as well as cavities, obesity, liver disease, and some forms of cancer. He actually wrote a book in 72 called Pure, White, and Deadly, and he argued that dietary fat and saturated fat are basically harmless. Ansel Keys uh, won the debate and in response to the work of Keyes and other advocates of the low-fat consumption in the 1970s, the food industry started manufacturing a huge market for its own processed foods, which contained a little bit of saturated fat, if any, and a lot of sugar. There was also the Senate Select Committee uh, in 1977 that worked with George McGovern, in our U.S. government, and they warned the obesity epidemic would be would actually outweigh the um, epidemic of malnutrition and starvation. And they said, if we don't reduce the intake of sugar and fatty foods and meat consumption and dairy, then we're in a lot of trouble. 
And at that same time, so they generated a report. At the same time this report was generated, the meat and dairy and uh, poultry and sugar industries all came together and united and actually buried that report and got rid of everything that was saying as far as reduced consumption. And there was a white paper produced um, called Sugar and the Diet of Man around that same time. These things led to the low fat era and the high consumption of sugar. We doubled our sugar intake over the course of 20 years and we doubled obesity along with it. Still in this hour of Tate Talks, the biology of carbohydrates, how they affect your body. Also, we're eating way more sugar than our statistics actually lead on. Stay right here with me on Tate Talks. If it's good for your mind and body, it's part of the discussion on Tate Talks. From iHub Radio, here's Jason Tate. You're listening to Tate Talks and Jason Tate. I'm here sharing some information about weight gain, obesity, statistics, and connecting the dots with some public policies that have happened and the science. I'm just trying to pull it together. So in the 70s, was the advent, was the beginning of the low-fat era. We had a lot of processed and um, new packaged foods. They were really coming onto the market, snack wells and you know things and microwaves. It, it was just, just this boon of new ways to instantly prepare foods and, and foods became more packaged and more processed. And when you have a processed food, you can dial up and dial down certain nutrients and change it. And so, as it turns out, there is no lobby for fat. There is no lobby to protect the fat industry out there, uh, unless you want to consider the dairy lobby because cheese is the fat skimmed off of milk. But uh, there is, however, a very powerful sugar lobby out there, and of course, the meat and dairy and poultry associations. So they pulled together in the 70s, they buried the McGovern report, and the dietary recommendations for Americans came out to consume more products that have leaner uh, and less fat, eat lean, less fat, low fat, and so all these foods started to become re-engineered as low fat, skim milk, 2%. Before then, more people had drinking whole milk, and more people had drank uh, and eaten whole milk ice cream, but then came this low-fat era. And so well-intentioned. I'm not going to say that, you know, that people are trying to, you know, trick everyone. It was well-intentioned. We did not want to end up in the situation that we're in right now with a $3.5 trillion healthcare budget, 86% of which is mostly preventable chronic disease. We didn't want to end up with this. But the science... It just, it just happened this way. Uh, and there's, you know, these companies stand to lose a lot of money if you stop eating sugar. And so the sugar consumption in this country uh, went up at a staggering rate. So just to give you a little bit of sugar data, okay? So let's see here. In 
the 17, so I'm going to go back again. I told you I was going to jump around with dates. Uh, in around 1770, so the late 1700s, um, Americans ate on average four pounds of sugar a year. And it was really just for the wealthy. It wasn't something that was readily available for everyone. It was just for the wealthy, you know, to have sugar in your tea or whatever. By 1800, we were consuming around 18 pounds of sugar a year. 1900, that number had jumped quite a bit to around 90 pounds a year. And at the turn of the century, 2000, we're consuming close to 170 pounds a year. Now, around 2020, it's close to 180 to 190 pounds of sugar a year. Now, when I say sugar, the results and data that they're coming with as far as what they call sugar is sucrose, which is a disaccharide, meaning two saccharose, two sugars, of glucose and fructose. Now, I said the word fructose uh, a little while back with some other data. I want to give you the science of this. So with carbohydrates, it's pretty straightforward. All carbohydrates are, whether they're complex or simple carbs, they're made up of one or two or more monosaccharides. And those three monosaccharides are glucose, fructose, and galactose. And that's it. That's what exists in nature. Why does it exist in nature? Where did it come from? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, almost a billion years ago, it was 800 and something, 900 million years ago, we have the first photosynthetic bacteria capable of harnessing uh, energy from the sun, combining carbon dioxide and water to form C6H12O6, which is glucose and the others. And so in this process of photosynthesis, oxygen is also a byproduct as well. And you have flash forward uh, a few hundred million years, you've got these first plants on land, which are mosses and lycopods. They're photosynthesizing as well. They need to be near water. It's all glucose at this point. There's no fructose anywhere on earth because there was no need for it yet, okay? So flash forward again, a few hundred million years, and you have these first seed plants, uh, these vascular tissue seed plants, these tall conifers and ginkgos and cycads, these giant palms, and they're using cones for reproduction, and they're still kind of relying on wind to carry their pollen through the air, and they still do to this day. There's about 700 different species of conifers, which are the Christmas trees uh, and related species. <clears throat> There's 700 of those, and they rely on wind to transfer their pollen, which isn't very efficient when you look at the hand delivery system that started, that evolved around 130 million years ago. 130 million years ago, we have the first flowering and fruiting plants. Using biochemistry, these first flowering plants, through experimentation, evolution, adaptation, they've converted the glucose into a pentagonal shape. It's still the same formula, C6H12O6, but it's a different shape. This pentagon shape of fructose is dozens of times sweeter than glucose. 
what's the point? Why? Well, to attract pollinators. Birds, bees, butterflies, moths, bats, animals to come and feed on this highly addictive, very sweet nectar. There's infrared markers on flowers. You know, this is, you know, flash forward a few million years of evolution, and you have these highly efficient flowers that are using animals to have sex, basically, with each other. They can spread their pollen, which has two sperm cells in each pollen grain, from one flower to the next, very specifically, because these animals tend to stick to one type of flower because they like that flavor. And so these bees are transferring these pollen dust, pollen grains, to the other flowers, which accelerates their evolution because they can reproduce sexually instead of asexually. And their rate of reproduction is much higher because they're getting help with pollinators. Now, some of these first uh, flowering plants produce fruits, but their fruits are these dry fruits. Uh, and by dry fruits, I don't mean like a dried apricot. I mean like the dried burrs and things that get caught in your sock and caught on your pet when you go for a hike. That is fruit, okay? That is a fruit from a grass usually. And if you were to tear it apart and look inside, you'd find a seed. So these early fruits would rely on an animal to pass by and catch those fruits on their fur or other body parts to help transport that, that uh, plant to a new area, which is pretty cool when you think about it because it's so annoying. You tear it off and you throw it on the ground. You just help that plant move. <laughs> that plant just used you, uh, and it uses animals in the same way. Then these flowering plants started experimenting with this highly, um, you know, productive and highly addictive fructose by combining fructose with glucose to make sucrose and fleshy fruits. So the first fleshy fruits, we're talking apples, pears, pomegranates, peaches, nectarines, grapes, tomatoes, strawberries, blackberries. And just berries, right? Berries on bushes. And animals like birds especially love these berries. And they eat the berry whole. They digest the soft, fleshy fruit outside. The seed passes through their digestive tract and out the other end. And therefore, again, this plant not only moved, but it has its own little package of fertilizer with it. And this is how these plants went from mainland onto islands because they followed the birds wherever the birds were defecating. That's where the plant would move to. Uh, larger animals, bears, and of course, the greatest animal species on earth as far as occupying every single niche of this earth, humans. We take, we started the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago. And we effectively move all these flowering plants and take them because it's food. Now, you look at why we crave sweet, why we crave that taste. Why do we crave fructose? Well, our evolution has taught us when you go back a million years, go, even go back 150,000 years, okay? If you ate something that was sweet, it meant it was a ripe fruit, it had a good amount of calories. It has minerals and vitamins, essential nutrients for you. And 
it meant, uh, or a good source of, of honey was another one. And it, and it was rare in nature. It's not like it is today. 100,000 years ago, it was super rare. 50,000, 10,000 years ago, it was extremely rare. And here we are today eating almost 200 pounds of sucrose a year on average. It's just mind-boggling to go from hardly any, and in some, some cultures reported less than a pound of sugar a year, talking to the aborigines in Australia, less than a pound a year. And in America, we average 41 teaspoons of sugar, of added sugar, of sucrose per year. It's just mind-boggling. What you look at when you look at the trend of the consumption of sugar and the rise in diabetes, these two lines just follow each other. As it turns out, the hormone and so I, I had recommended Dr. Robert Lustig's book, Fat Chance, the hormone that is responsible for most of our issues is insulin. Insulin is a hormone released by the pancreas in response to carbohydrates. And the more carbohydrates you eat, the more insulin you produce and so on and so forth. There is a way to kind of connect the dots between carbohydrates and insulin and almost, I don't even want to call it biohacking, but I just want to call it bio-understanding. When you understand that certain foods trigger insulin, and when you have insulin going through your body, you're not burning fat, you're making fat. And this is why you know diets like the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting, it's why they work, is because they're insulin management diets. And this is really... The science. This is really what it is. And it's it's just so cool and interesting and fascinating to me that 130 million years ago, these first flowering plants developed this fructose so they can reproduce and pair it with glucose so they can make sucrose so they can get their young, their embryos, their seeds out there in the world and spread them around the world through animals' digestive tracts. And here we are today, hooked on this sugar that is addictive, if not more, than crack cocaine. It's just wild to me. Next on Tate Talks, with this information, what could and should I eat if I'm experiencing or at risk of diabetes? And what is a glycemic index? Stay right here with me on Tate Talks. inspiring you with the tools and knowledge to make the necessary changes to live life optimally. This is Tate Talks on iHub Radio. This is Tate Talks and my name is Jason Tate. Thank you for listening to my show. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to this information that I've put together in an effort to really fulfill a mission. Uh, as a teacher, which I'm a <clears throat> public high school teacher as well as a functional medicine health coach and wellness speaker. As a teacher, my goal for the courses that I teach is to inspire students, teenagers, to take an interest in their own health. 
inspire them to look at food a little differently and do their research. Inspire them to try new and different types of foods and try establishing healthier habits, even if it's a little change. Uh, just progress, just moving forward. And the ultimate goal really as a teacher is for me to inform students and teenagers and now you that your health destiny is within your control. And you can start at any time. You can start as a teenager, you can start even younger, you can start you know, in middle age, you can start as a senior citizen taking care of your body because you just get the one. My goal for these teenagers that I work with is that they have a life free from preventable chronic disease, that they can watch their children grow and grandchildren and possibly their great-grandchildren and live a life you know, if, if their life is taken by other means, then so be it. But the last thing I would want is for my students to pass away early, die early from nutritional ignorance. So my goal is to, you know, share this information. I've been talking about obesity. Why, why do we even use obesity as a measurement in this country? And, and BMI itself, body mass index, is inherently flawed as far as how it's measured because you know if i'm a 42 year old bodybuilder and i'm you know i'm six foot three i'm pretty tall but if i was you know in my heavy weight shape you know and and had maybe 10 percent body fat percentage and i weighed 225 pounds and i was just a mountain of muscle my bmi would show that i'm obese well, that's not right. <laughs> so body mass index is inherently flawed for people who are athletes and bodybuilders. Uh, and there are some people that even just have very large bodies. Yeah. I was going to say, know? Jason, there are other people. Like the first time I actually went to a gym and they did my <clears throat> body fat and the BMI mm -hmm. uh, numbers and all that, they were like, mm -hmm. we couldn't. Uh, tell looking at you uh, before, but you have a lot of lean muscle uh, in your body that, yeah. that you know, they would yeah. not have otherwise realized. So different bodies and different shapes right. can be different things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I wanted, I'm, I, I wish I had mentioned it earlier. BMI still is semi-accurate for certain age groups and it's very easy to calculate so we use it um, so i will say that it is flawed there are with technology nowadays there's these fantastic devices i've worked with a company called fit 3d they actually do a 3d body scan and bioelectric impedance through bare feet as you stand on these pads and they calculate your actual body fat percentage and whether or not you are in an obese category or not. And so there are far more advanced ways to calculate. But BMI is easy. It's quick. You can do it without even meeting somebody face-to-face. -face. I can just tell you my height and weight and age, and male or female, and I can you know calculate a BMI. Um, so there is a flaw in it, though. I, won't, I will say that for the record. It is accurate for many people, but not every people. 
Okay, not everybody. So again, some basic food rules that I want to share with you. I've been talking about obesity. I've been talking about weight gain. Cert, you know, and I and I used a quote uh, actually, and I said, just like cigarettes, smoking cigarettes can literally cause lung cancer. Certain foods can literally cause you to gain weight, specifically fat. And these foods are carbohydrates because of the role that they play with insulin. Insulin is a hormone released by the pancreas that its job is to take the free glucose that's in your blood and store it in cells and tissues. Certain tissues and organs in the body use glucose as energy, as fuel. Your brain is one of them. Uh, it's a huge glucose hog. It loves glucose. But when you have extra glucose, and we have so much, we eat so much glucose in this country. It's insane. The muscles will store glucose and the liver will store glucose as glycogen. And the liver will actually give it up if you need it. The muscles will not. But then we still have extra glucose because we eat so much. Now the body's going to actually make fat cells to store that glucose if all the fat cells are full. So Understanding that when you're eating carbohydrates, you're causing a spike in insulin. There's a fantastic TED talk that, what's the name? Dr. Sarah Hallberg, I think is the name uh, of the scientist that does this TED talk about reversing type 2 diabetes. I will put the link in my uh, podcast so you can watch it. It's fantastic. And she also outlines, you know, when you manage insulin, you can manage your weight. It really just comes down to insulin management. So some things that to keep in mind, and I just want to give some basic food rules. When you wake up in the morning, start your morning with water. And try, if you can, and I highly recommend this, for the first hour, don't eat anything. Just water. And if you have coffee, fine, have coffee. But don't sugar up your coffee. What I would like for you to do is to not have any insulin producing foods for the first hour of your day. If you can push that even further, I actually push it for three or four hours without eating and I just have water in the morning. This is a way for you to really kind of set a balance. So, but just try the first hour of not doing that, of not having anything that would trigger insulin. Um, also add on to that, you know, before you go to bed at night, have your dinner at a normal dinner hour and then don't eat again. Okay, don't have a late night snack. <laughs> the late night snack usually is something that triggers insulin and you're going to be making fat through your sleep. Don't have that late night snack. <laughs> uh, just have, um, you know, have water. If you're hungry later, have water or have something that is a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat, but no carbohydrates late at night. And you'll be going a long way to start to manage the insulin and the spikes of insulin. Plus, there is a beauty to intermittent fasting or what they call time-restricted eating. If you decide, okay, I'm going to eat my meals between, you know, uh, 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., all right, fine, or 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. or 7, whatever. So time-restricted eating, you can pick the time of day where you are going to do this. We'll be back with another hour of Tate Talks right after the news. 